If you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Luke 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors also, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn or weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, Wisdom is justified by all her children. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our risen Savior, by your Spirit, allow me to unfold this encounter you had in your earthly life on that day. Allow me to have this text speak clearly to minds and our hearts and change us to the glory of Christ. Amen. Yes, this is a pretty long passage this morning. But it's one whole passage that has three sub-units to it. The first is the question of John and Jesus' answer. The second then is when Jesus turns to the crowd and He gives His opinion of who John the Baptist is. And then the third is Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees and many of the professional teachers of Judaism 
in his day. In this text, we will see that in John the Baptist, there's such a thing as doubting, as doubts that come from a godly person. In this case, one who is toward God, loves God, like John, and his doubts are coming from his confusion in the midst of his own very difficult circumstances mixed with his wrong conclusions about God in theology and Jesus' coming. Do you doubt? Do you wrestle at times with doubts? As a believer, it's part of being a believer. Then, we will also see in this text, there's a different kind of doubt that's coming from the Jewish professional teachers and the ultra-religious. And this is a doubt that springs from not wanting to face their own sinfulness before God. And they'll ask questions, and they'll come up with answers. This is not true doubt. It's not true questions looking for genuine answers. It's a protecting oneself from having to come to grips with your own sin and your own situation before a holy God. So, let's go to the text. We've got a lot to work through and and look at it. Start with verses 18 and 19 of Luke 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Uh, Everything Jesus had been doing, the miracles, he just raised a dead guy who was hard and cold. And they reported all these things to John the Baptist. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or... Should we look for another? What the heck is going on? We we need some cultural background here. What's going on in the theological, their understanding of Scripture that they already have? What's happening that causes John, while he's sitting in prison here, to just scratch his head? I don't get it. Well, what's happening is this. In the first century... The Jews as a whole, they're anticipating. They have Scripture for it. They're waiting for the Messiah, the Son of David that's promised, the King to come and to bring the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God to earth, which will mean wiping out God's enemies and Israel's enemies. It will mean putting an end to sin and evil, and Satan, and foreign rule, like Rome. It will all be gone. Joy, and peace, and prosperity. No more fearing lions eating you. They'll lie down with the lamb. Okay, So that's what they're expecting. The kingdom of God to come. And they have all kinds of biblical support for that belief. I could read for a couple hours from the Old Testament the prophecies about the kingdom coming and producing that kind of an existence. I'm just going to read a few. So let's get a taste of where they're getting this idea. From Isaiah 1st chapter 35 verses 9 to 10. No lion shall be there in the future kingdom. Nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. No more sorrow. They're waiting for this rule in reign. Or in Daniel, he prophesies in chapter 2, And in the days of those kings, 
the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms like Rome and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Or in chapter 7 of Daniel, we read, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And in Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And His kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Okay, John knows these texts. All these first century Jews know these texts. Kingdom is going to come and wipe everything out. The prophet Zechariah said it this way in verse 9, And the Lord will be King. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be King over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one in His name. One. Okay? Now, if you remember, months back, at the beginning of Luke, Luke records the prophecy of John the Baptist's dad. Here's a portion of it when he prophesied. And God has raised up a horn of salvation. Not referring to His son John but the one who is to come after Him, Jesus. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He's coming, the King, to bring the kingdom. Then, John the Baptist grows up And he starts preaching in the wilderness down by the Jordan River saying, repent because the kingdom prophesied about, we just heard about, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. Saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. But there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, when He comes, shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand and He will clear His threshing floor and He will gather His wheat into the barn. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus shows up and at the beginning of His ministry He says, the time that we just read about is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the good news. So, Jesus is coming and He's saying, yes, the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God prophesied about in the Old Testament, it has arrived with Me coming. This is how He'll say it later in Luke chapter 11. If it is by the finger of God that I, Jesus, cast out demons then, know this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, now I'm going to just add a little bit more. We'll get back to John in a minute. Here's the thing about Jesus' coming. There was a mystery to it. New Testament calls it a mystery, secret. This is how Jesus said it in Mark 4. To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. He's speaking to His twelve apostles. But for the rest outside, everything I give to them is in parables. Now, here's the kicker. The secret or the mysterious thing about Jesus' coming and bringing the kingdom is this. That these future prophecies that God had His prophets tell about, a new heavens and a new earth, No more evil. No more tears. No more sin. No more death. God sitting on the throne in King David's Son. Reigning. The secret is that before 
all of that final consummation promised. The King comes the first time. Fulfilling a prophecy they did not take into account. Isaiah chapter 53. That the Messiah comes in two comings. Three. (laughs) In two comings. A first coming in order to suffer and to die as the substitutionary sacrifice upon which God Himself would pour out His justice in wrath upon Jesus. And then He'd be raised from the dead. And then a period of time would go by where that message is preached and people will be coming into the spiritual rule and reign of God. But then there's a time that's still future where this same man born and walking the Sea of Galilee and preaching in the hill country that we're reading about and was raised from the dead one day, He will come back again. And He will bring in the fulfillment of all these end time prophecies. Okay. They did not have this theological chart worked out that way. They saw one coming. They read the prophets... And the Messiah, the Son of David, the King will come bringing in the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God. But the truth is, the way God has always planned it, is that that kingdom will be coming in two stages. Stage one is the suffering servant to die and to rise. And then one day to come back. His presence, as we're reading through Luke, the message and the mystery of the kingdom is this. Yes, the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, not physical yet, the rule and the reign of God is present in the King Jesus. It's present, but it's also not yet. Much of what's been prophesied is held off for the future. That's the mystery. John the Baptist doesn't get it. No one has accounted for this. So now, we go back to the text. John is in prison. Remember, he's rebuking Herod for his sexual immorality. He didn't like it, and so he finally imprisoned John. John is east of the Dead Sea in a place called Macarius, a very desolate place where this old fortress was. And he's in the dungeon there in prison. And it is there now, John becomes increasingly perplexed. This is not fitting. What the the Messiah is supposed to do. Because this is the John, remember, he said, and he recognized Jesus. This is the one. There's the Lamb of God. That's the guy he ought to follow. Jesus, no, uh uh. I should be baptized by you, not you by me. This is the one John said. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with the fire of judgment. He sees signs of the work of the Spirit, of baptizing with the Spirit. He's hearing the reports. Deaf are hearing. Blind are seeing. The lame are walking. Dead. Times. Cold, hard corpses. Brings them to life. He sees that. He's wondering, what about the fire? Where's the fire of judgment? Where's the winnowing fork? Why have you not burned up the chaff of Herod, who has me imprisoned right now? In all of Romans' rule and subjugation of our people, Israel, I'm stuck in prison. What's happening? That's what's going on in John. You following this? See, John knew these prophecies. He could quote them by memory. He knew, for instance, Isaiah chapter 61 very well. Remember, this is a very key text because this is the text, remember, that Jesus, when He showed up in the synagogue of His hometown of Nazareth, read. Okay? This is what John knows by heart. Quote, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, what He would say. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember? Jesus quoted that. And He stopped. And He didn't read the next line, which says, And the day of vengeance of our God. John knows that. The Messiah comes, He brings all these good things, and He brings judgment, and He wipes out His enemies and the enemies of Israel. And so He's in prison. What's going on? These evil people are about to kill me, which they will kill Him. Cut His head off. And not only that, they go on partying and drinking as if everything is just fine. Aren't you going to help me, Jesus? Did I miss it? I mean, I was announcing you're coming. Did, did it, somehow did I miss it? I'm not getting it. Are you the Messiah or not? Well, he can't go. So he sends two of his disciples. And so we pick up in verse 20 to 23. And when the men, John's disciples, had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And He answered John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. That's Isaiah 61. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, so Jesus' answer is, watch and listen. And go tell John. And what he says to him, you see it? When he starts saying, the blind receive their sight, and the deaf hear, and the good news is preached. These guys, you've got to understand, these, they're very biblically oriented. Very oral culture. They got these scriptures in their minds and in their hearts. Jesus, in all that he said there, was alluding to prophecies from Isaiah. From Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 35, and Isaiah chapter 61. Chapter 61 verses 1 to 2 is the one I just read where it talks about He'll come and proclaim good news to the poor. And Jesus says, I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. And Jesus says, go tell John this. But He doesn't give any explanation of why He's not bringing in the other part of that same prophecy. The vengeance and the judgment of God against His enemies. Then, at the end, in verse 23, Jesus telling John's two disciples, gives this loving, radical warning to John and to everybody. And blessed. I mean, it's really good for the one who is not offended by me. That's a call to faith that Jesus centers on Himself. Not offended by me. He says, anyone who is not offended doesn't trip up on me and the reality of who I am 
in what I'm doing and what I'm not doing, what you might have expected right now, if you're not offended by that, you're blessed. Now, I'm going to sit on that verse because that verse 23, when Jesus says that, is loaded with biblical meaning. Just as the other texts were loaded with biblical meaning, the prophecies of the Messiah, Jesus, when He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by Me, is alluding to two passages in Isaiah the prophet. Listen. First in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. Quote, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. And let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. And a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. He'll become, that is the Messiah, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is alluding to that text. There's other prophecies about me. Be careful. I am the Messiah. And according to Isaiah 8, the Messiah will come and many of my fellow Jews will trip over Him. They won't get it and they'll be offended. One more. In Isaiah 28, we hear about the Messiah. Behold, I the Lord am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be disappointed. Okay. These are crucial texts of the Messiah coming and stumbling. Because as we see, the Jews of the first century, we know this historically from their theologies, from the pseudepigrapha, they had end time prophecies, I mean, prophecies and they put together schemes of what they thought it would look like, like Christians do today. And no one accounted for two comings. No one accounted that Isaiah 53 referred to the son of David who's going to come as a man and die for sin and rise. No one had it. And because of that, these prophecies are there to show that when the Messiah comes, (laughs) it's going to cause many Jews to stumble. They're not going to see it. It won't fit. They don't have a grid. He's going to come the first time as a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Not as a conquering king, which he will do one day. And therefore, Jesus' ministry on earth, in his incarnation, in his first coming, is not only the cornerstone that we read in Isaiah, meaning that big, huge block, you start with that. This is like their foundation. Right now, you build a building today, we pour concrete into the forms. You've got to have a sure foundation on which to build. Well, their foundation was the cornerstone. And He's going to build a spiritual temple. That's the coming of the Messiah. But the other truth about that is, is that cornerstone is not only that glorious stone where God will be building a new spiritual, eternal, everlasting building, temple of His people, it will be a stone over which many of His fellow Jews will stumble. That's why these stumbling stone texts became central in the New Testament. 
me give you a taste. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 9, verses 31 to 33. Israel, and Paul's a Jew himself, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on Jewish legalism. They now listen to Paul. Listen to him. He's got these texts in his head. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Okay, Go to 1 Corinthians. and Very familiar to most of you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, this is what's happening now. Because there's, there's two comings. There's the first coming. And since the first coming, for however long it lasts, 100 years or 300, or it's been 2,000 years so far, this is what we do. The church. We preach Christ. That's the Messiah. Greek word for Messiah. We preach the Christ. The Messiah. Not conquering hero, but crucified. A disgusting, legal, Execution by the Roman state. That's our message. That's what Paul says. We preach Christ crucified. Now listen to him. It's in his head. And that message is a stumbling block to Jews. Another Jew. The Apostle Peter, when he's writing later in his first epistle, says this in chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. And is this you? Because he's talking to Christians. Think about this. Is this you? He says, As you come to Him, Christ the Messiah, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God He's chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because it stands in the Old Testament Scriptures. Quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And Peter goes on. And so, the honor of that is for you who believe in Jesus. But, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and now he quotes Isaiah 8, and he's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay. Back to our text. Guys, go tell John I know it's mysterious now. And it's hard for him to get now. But tell him, blessed is the person who does not get offended at me. In other words, tell him, John, you and everybody who doesn't stumble over or trip over me, in other words, you don't get offended at the way I have chosen to do salvation. You're not offended over the reality of the depth of human sin and God choosing to become a man in order to bear the wrath of God against everyone who would believe in that cornerstone. Don't be offended, John, or any of us in any age. Don't be offended that there, in reality, are two comings, not just one.
Let's pick up verse 24 to 27. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, of course not. Well then, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in splendid clothing? And who lives in luxury? Of course not. Those who are dressed in those fine, splendid clothes and live in luxury are in king's courts. Well then, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And more than a prophet. John the Baptist is the one spoken of in the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So, Jesus is clear. The Messiah says, yes, you didn't go out there into the wilderness, those of you who got baptized, just to see plant life like a reed. You you didn't go out there to hear some preacher who's preaching for money so he can be dressed in really nice clothes. Nope. You saw a crazy looking guy who is a prophet, dressed in prophet's clothes. Not only that, he's more than a prophet. Because this John was written about 430 years before he was born in Malachi 3.1. He has been ordained from the foundation of the world, Jesus is saying, to be that person who announces, this is stunning, Jesus is saying, My coming. The Messiah's coming. The coming of the kingdom. And then Jesus makes this stunning comment in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Okay, so what's going on? Okay, got to get it. The whole, what we would call the Old Testament or pre-Christ era, that whole Old Testament in the Scriptures have been leading up to the inauguration of the Kingdom of God. The coming of the King. And John the Baptist had a role. As what? The one who goes before and announces the coming. Okay? The kingdom of God is this marvelous thing that everything is pointing to when the king brings it. Okay? That's the thing. John's role is to come before it and to announce it. He's not the thing. Okay. State of the Union address, right? Okay. Finally, they shut the doors. The guy comes in. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States of America. He's not the thing. He's announcing the entry of the President to speak before the Joint Congress. So John had the role to announce this great thing. But technically, historically, he was before the great thing. The kingdom of God is superior to the announcer of the kingdom of God. John is the last and the greatest of the prophets of the era before the coming of the kingdom of God. Sacrificial substitutionary death of the king and the resurrection and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the kingdom has been present ever since and people have been fleeing into it for salvation ever since. And therefore, the person who is least in the kingdom, post-cross and resurrection, 
is in a much better experience historically than John the Baptist. Don't get it wrong. In the end, see, John the Baptist and Abraham and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, these, they're all in the kingdom, okay? He's talking about in redemptive historical timeline. He's the greatest in that era. But just the least little nobody who's come into the kingdom of God through Christ is in a greater earthly predicament than John the Baptist was. Okay, make some sense? Okay. Then, verse 29 to 30, we have this comment by Luke inserted. Jesus says what he says. And he says, when all the people heard Jesus' idea of who John the Baptist was, and even the tax collectors, also, they declared God just, having been, or because they were baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves by not having been baptized by John. Okay. He says, look, the crowds, your everyday people, and then even those people who were just outside the bounds, within Judea, tax collectors, prostitutes, as the so-called ultra-religious Pharisees, we wouldn't even touch them. They were getting baptized by John. John's saying, repent, meaning see your sin. Do you understand? Whether you're a Jew or not, it's not going to get you anything. See your sin. And come to the waters. A baptism representing your turning away from it and preparing for the Christ, the Messiah, to come. And they're flocking to John. They've been flocking to John. But not everybody. Those who knew the Scripture the best. Those whose life was so wrapped up in their religiosity and who took great pride in their religiosity stood back and did not submit to the message of God through John. They didn't justify God. The others did. They're declaring by, I will be baptized. They're saying, God, through John the prophet, you're right. I need to repent. That's what it means when it says they justified God or declared Him to be right. They're agreeing with Him. The others did not. We don't need to do that. We're not just your average Jew. We're Pharisees. That word lawyers means those professional ordained teachers of the law. Your average person, maybe. Not us. Jesus goes on. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. John the Baptist came as an ascetic. And you got an excuse. He has a demon. The Son of Man, okay, He's not an ascetic. He's the opposite. He's partying with tax collectors and hanging out with prostitutes and talking to them. And He drinks and He eats. But you won't receive Him. You've got an excuse. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what Jesus does there he uses a popular children's phrase. Oh, we got the what? Ring around the rosy or hide and seek, right? Ready or not, here I come. We, okay, just, we got this saying was a, just everyone knew it. It's in the culture, very popular saying, we played the flute for you, etc. Now, Jesus puts that children's saying in the mouth of those he's condemning. Now, the, the mouth of most of these Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Essentially they're saying, we 
played the flute for you and you didn't join in. In other words, they have a particular music. Happy flute, somber funeral song. Come play with us, John the Baptist. And John didn't. He didn't fit. Jesus comes totally different. Okay, you're so happy and partying. We'll sing a dirge, funeral, somber music. And Jesus, you won't play with us. This is the point. Jesus is saying their attitude is, when God sends the prophet of Malachi 3.1 and He sends the promised Messiah, you have so constructed your religion and your ideas of who you think God should be that you say to them, you don't play our game. We have nothing to do with you. That's His point. They're saying... You don't fit. His point is, it doesn't matter. The issue is not because you have real intellectual honest questions, my dear Pharisee, and professional teachers of the law. The issue is your heart, is what he's saying. You would make up any excuse not to submit to the message that God gave John the Baptist that you need to repent that you're really that sinful and that you're really that much in trouble with God. They wouldn't submit to it ever unless something in their heart changed. So, though John the Baptist, he's got a demon. Okay, Jesus, well, he's just a drunkard. Excuse isn't the thing. Excuse is a cover for their heart. Their real problem there is not godly doubt. Their problem is a hard issue that will not and refuses to come to grips with itself and its sinfulness and thus it refuses to even see and recognize the truth of Jesus Himself. These kinds of people, they want to play their own music. They want to dance according to to their own philosophical, theological ideas. And when they come into the church world, which they have always done, they will continue to be religious and they will change the music. They will change biblical theology. They will change the tune of the one true gospel into some light-hearted dance. So Jesus says here, on the one hand, there is the unbelieving religious establishment and their end is gloomy. But finally, last verse, 35. (laughs) There's hope. Yet, wisdom is justified. It, it, It will be proven Right. Acquitted. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, he's just saying, those who respond to John and then respond to me, the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, yes, in repentance and faith, I am wretched. And they hear the message that God in Christ has poured out your punishment on Him and they happily receive it. He says, That wisdom of God, that that, that action of God opening their eyes, they're the fruit of wisdom. Uh, They're the children of that wisdom. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do before I close here is re-say it all. Because I know it's a long passage. I'm going to just take what we've just seen in this one long passage and condense it into a, a, a more a short, getting at the point, paraphrase of what we've seen. Jesus, John wants to know if you're the Messiah because he's confused and that you have not wiped out 
our enemies and He's still rotting in prison. You haven't brought in the fiery judgment. Jesus says, you go tell John, yes, I am the one. But John, you and, and all of my fellow Jews in the first century have not read the Bible correctly. You have not read it close enough to see that I must come as the suffering servant the first time. As Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 said, then, down the road, I'll come back again and bring in the fulfillment of all those other prophecies. But John, hang in there. Trust me, and you will be really happy that you did not trip up over these truths. Now the rest of you, John was the greatest and the last prophet of the old era because he announced me, the king, and the dawning of the kingdom of God invading this world secretly. This kingdom is so great that a little housewife who's in the kingdom because of her faith in Jesus, is in a much better position than the great John the Baptist himself. And so, don't be the self-righteous, hard-hearted, like many in this generation who have constructed their own religion well enough in order to reject the one true Gospel of God in Jesus. But be children of the wisdom that sees and believes the truth. And so, let's learn and embrace these lessons from this text. Christian, or even non-Christian with genuine questions, there are doubts that one could have that are the life experience of a heart of faith. But the other lesson is this. There's another kind of doubt that springs from the core of a sinful disposition that wants to remain blinded in order that it continue in its sinful lifestyle in ways. Deep down it knows if I bring myself to come to grips with the truth, I might have to change my sexual lifestyle. The way I deal with money, the way I deal with people and my time. And so, it fools itself, calling it doubt, like the Pharisees. This doubt there is not mainly intellectual, seeking answers to the questions like the existence of God or the problem with evil. Yeah, I mean, these are great, great questions and every Christian ought to constantly ask them and come to biblical answers. But there's a type of doubt that is not a sincere doubt and they're not sincere questions. It's trying to protect oneself. Well, I just can't believe that God would create a world in which there would be actual judgments against sinners. Called hell. So, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't buy that. This doubt, this sinful flowing from that core doubt, has its own religion. It has, whether it calls it, calls it atheism, or even... There, People are members of churches like this. It has its own world view that John the Baptist and Jesus don't fit into. I mean, they'll still use those names. Of course we believe in Jesus. But, but it has its world view that true Christianity, the clean, pure gospel laid out in this book, it really doesn't fit. And so they say, we have our worldview. And we play the flute. 
That doesn't dance with what we think. We sing a dirge. That, that doesn't work. No, no way. Can't be true. John has a demon. And Jesus is a stinking drunk who hangs with sinners. Or, let me just, in today's form, it would go something like the conversation I watched with, that Bill O'Reilly had with Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. Bill Rice, he's a Christian, he's a Roman Catholic. But his question, it wasn't really a question, but it went something like this. Franklin, come on. You teach that an innocent 18-year-old young woman who was murdered in a Nazi death camp will be judged by God for her sin and be condemned just because she did not embrace Jesus Christ as her Savior? Well, his whole point was, I can't buy that. I play the flute. And that idea of a Savior, it doesn't play my game. Our text warns against that kind of doubt. That doubt that does not seek real answers to genuine questions. And finally, our passage does not condemn the doubt of John the Baptist or of you. If it's this genuine doubt that's asking genuine questions and struggles to come to grips with what the Scripture seems to say. I mean, you ought to... Whoa! I actually believe that God became a human being. I mean, a genuine human being. One person, two distinct natures. And He did it in order to die that brutal death where God Himself would pour out the penalty against sin for all who would believe. And then he came up out of the grave and those who testified to that, that that's actually true. That is bizarre on one level. And it's the essence of Christianity in another. So when, when you wrestle with it and you come to grips, yes again, I do! And you come prayerfully. It is amazing the work of the Spirit. You doubt sometimes, Christian, you think, gosh, is God really that holy? Is there really a hell? Is sin really that grievous and deep? You struggle with that? Good. Do it. Struggle away in front of the Scripture and prayerfully and want answers. Deep answers to hard questions. The way the Apostle Peter tells us is, believer, as you struggle through these issues in life, do it desiring the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have sent the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, in order to turn away Your just wrath against all who trust You. And I thank You that, Lord Jesus, You have purchased all of our salvation. You have purchased the pouring out, the sending of God, the Holy Spirit, to break our hard hearts, to put down our defenses, and to see it's true that you have given an absolutely free gift of eternal, everlasting forgiveness of our sins by paying for it yourself and that there's nothing we can do or add or earn from you but we can just receive 
Oh, may that happen now. May we continue to swim in that river of the grace of the gospel. To the glory of your name, Jesus. To the glory of your Father and our Father. 